was Bond. James Bond. Japanese proverbs say, bird never make nest in bear tree. Just a slight stiffness coming on. Your cellos are study values. I'm just up here at Oxford, brushing up on a little Danish. You know what I can do with my little finger. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubbyhole, Series 2, Episode 10. Thanks for your presence in the cubbyhole in what is our final appearance of Series 2, and what a series it's been. We've had the pleasure of listening to some fascinating Bond-related stories from our guests. We've deliberated and discussed our 007 best rankings in lots of different categories, and we've had plenty of fun with the other segments, too. So we hope you've enjoyed the ride more so than Bond does with Fiona Volpe in Thunderball, perhaps even as much as JW in The Man with the Golden Gun. Do let us know by submitting a review. You can find us on all good podcasting platforms, although a review on Apple Podcasts will probably best help us spread word to the wider Bond-loving world. And as ever, do keep your great correspondence coming. Phil in QBranch will be sure to save some of your best questions, observations, and theories ready for Series 3. So don't be a stranger. Do keep in touch via email, rogermorescubbyhole at gmail.com. And you can find us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for all of your likes, follows, and comments, all of which are greatly appreciated. Now, in our previous episode, we spoke to special effects maestro John Richardson about his extensive work on the Bond films. We ranked our 007 best non-car vehicles of the franchise, and Phil shared his buy-spy theory concerning the sexual proclivities of our favorite 00 agent. To be honest, he couldn't provide much in the way of concrete evidence, but Catherine Tate's Nan does appear to agree. Uh, thankfully, Nan won't be joining us this week, but we have brought in reinforcements, Tiger Taneka style, for our series finale hosting team. Firstly, he's the Sean Connery to my Roger Moore. It's Adam. How are you, Adam? Thank you very much. I'm uh, I'm very well, thank you. I'm uh, looking forward to ending the series on a bang. Um, are you sure that Catherine Tate's nan isn't joining us? I, I was under the impression that she she was going to be our interviewee this week. I think she cancelled last minute. What a pity. Oh, what a pity. And secondly, he's the George Lazenby to my Daniel Craig. It's Phil. How are you, Phil? I did have a look at Twitter very briefly, and I think there was some kind of petition for you to be wearing the 800-pound octopusy robe for our series finale. Judging by what I can see, thankfully, that didn't work. <laughs> How are you? Yeah, not so bad, thanks, Martin. Yes, we were trying to get a uh, GoFundMe page off the ground to get uh, the octopusy silk robe that's currently up for sale in the 007 store. Um, alas, nobody's taken us up on that offer yet. So maybe that's something for, for the season three finale. As ever, I just wanted to go through our shout outs this week from our social media channels. So just on Facebook, a huge thanks to Steve Holmes behind the stunts and the Golden Eye dossier for your follows this week. And thank you on Twitter to Matt Malia, Jack Wilde, Jason Kennedy, Victor Gonzalez and Herman for your follows. As ever, we've had a lot of great interactions with our um, ninth episode of the series. So on Facebook, plenty of comments for our non-car based um, vehicles. So Gavin Clark was saying that he loves the boats from Moonraker, the one that has the hang glider escape and we also had an interesting comments from pat martimucci now recently christopher walken of course who played max zorin infamously in a view to a kill celebrated his 78th birthday um now pat martimucci obviously is very in awe of our um sort of impersonations he did 
get it a little bit wrong. He thought that Martin had done the impersonation for Christopher Walken in our most recent episode. Um, it is actually Adam that does them normally, but Martin, I'm intrigued to see your Chris Walken impression. I think this is this is something we need to hear. Well, I don't think it is, to be honest. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, you know, your, your impression of Christopher Walken is much loved on social media. I think you should give us a little blast of it. Happiest in the saddle. Well, damn, that was actually all right. You can do them from now on. As you wish. Hmm. May day. I provide you with a drink. And finally, a very warm welcome back to a great friend of the show. He's the Pierce Brosnan to my Timothy Dalton. It's Nicholas Broadstock. How are you, Nick? Hi. Thank, thanks for having me back. Uh, I apologize. I haven't been on this season much, but I was involved in a legal dispute with Kevin McClory, who uh, claims that my podcast persona originated in the Thunderbolt script. But, uh, that's now settled, so I can reappear. So, so Nick, we did hear you during uh, our interview with John Grover this series, but we haven't had you here properly in the cubby hole, I guess, since Goldeneye. So I know you were watching the films through with us. Uh, what, what did you sort of reckon to the other Brosnans and indeed the Daniel Craigs going back on them? Yeah, I kind of raised it. The, the world is not enough a bit higher than you guys did in your review. I, like, I still enjoy that one. I agreed that Die Another Day is just a complete disgrace except for the first few minutes which i accept are quite good but yeah the craig films really hold up casino royale skyfall those have not aged today and they're still spectacular yeah there is a lot of support online uh, within the bond community for the world is not enough um, that that's really highly rated or, or beginning to be quite highly rated so yeah maybe that's one i need to go back on as well that and live and let die i feel after this series Okay, so let's begin our show with the first segment, On the Scene, where we take a closer look at a memorable moment from the Bond franchise. And this week, we're off to the kickboxing in The Man with the Golden Gun. Uh, but we're not like Lieutenant Hip. If you've forgotten what happens, we're not going to leave you behind, because Mr. Alan Partridge is here to remind us what happens. Roger Moore and Brit Eklund stick out like sore thumbs at a Thai kickboxing match. Honestly, they're meant to be spies. Rog parks himself next to Andrea Anders while Brick gets gel again. But Anders has only gone and gotten herself shot. And to make it all worse, bloody Skazza sits next to him while a gun-toting, not-chewing knick-knack creeps up behind. A gun in a bag of peanuts, what will they think of next? Skazza boasts about offing his missus, then wangs on a bit about shooting his beloved pet elephant in a circus. I always thought I liked animals. Then I discovered that I liked killing people even more. While he's busy tearing up, Bond spots the Solex MacGuffin thing and gives it to nut salesman Hip, who stupidly passes it on to Britters. Skazza tells Bond to back off and legs it, then Britters, like an absolute idiot, gets bundled into Skazza's boot. Women, good night, where are you? Somebody lock me in the boots. And as soon as Bond and Hip try to follow, oh no. Good night, where are the car keys? Oh, I've got the keys. And I've got the Solex. Classic good night. So Bond joyrides with JW instead, who for some reason's buying a car on holiday in Thailand. Outline demonstration, boy. Certainly, sir. The end. Thank you very much, Alan. So uh, this one, a very interesting scene where we get kind of a combination of all of the characters in the film. Now, we have mentioned previously that this film is not really our favourite, but uh, Christopher Lee is an excellent villain. So uh, yeah, I think this one 
uh, an excellent way of kind of uh, interacting with all the characters. Some knick-knack, some goodnight. Goodnight does get a couple of good lines with Bond in this one. So uh, yeah, I think overall, some good interaction between the, uh, the different characters. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm not one of the ones to, to kind of be particularly complimentary about The Man with the Golden Gun. It does have a lot of flaws. But for me, this is one of the better scenes of the film. Principally because of the fact that it kind of introduces Bond to Scaramanga face to face. This is the first time they've actually seen one another. I also think it's brilliant how Maud Adams' character, how that, as Andrew Anders, it kind of comes to an end. Because even going back to when I was a kid watching it with my dad, I never expected that to be the outcome. I never expected, you know, for Anders to be executed. You still think, how the hell did he do that shot? Because even with a silencer and a sniper rifle, you're still going to get heard. It's still going to you know, there's still going to be a, a bullet is going to go through at some point. So it's, you know, it's the technical difficulty of that is a scene to behold. Yeah, I think about the murder, like you see that Bond's face as well. He kind of like, where did this shot come from? He gets really concerned. And obviously it's meant to be a very public place. It kind of recalls for me the kind of sumo wrestling, you only live twice, kind of set up meeting the contact. But suddenly Bond is not in control and he thinks he could be shot and he definitely could be but Scaramanga is kind of too curious he wants to play with him but yeah it's it's an interesting as you say surprise yeah absolutely and the fact that it's a, a kickboxing match as well that there's a duel happening in front of all the spectators it mirrors the very quiet duel that then happens between Bond and Scaramanga who very much outbonds Bond in this scene doesn't he like you've said he's absolutely in control he's incredibly charming he even copies Bond's intro line if you notice he introduces himself as Scaramanga Francisco Scaramanga um, and to go back to what you said about the actual shot, I love the fact that he's just very coldly analysing his own performance in managing to shoot Anders as well. I think what's interesting to me about this scene as well is that the film should end here. Like Roger Moore gets the Solex, like he gets the thing that he's been after. He's not after Scaramanga at this point. He's just sort of tangentially involved because Anders sent Bond the golden bullet. So really, were it not for what happens at the end of this scene, this is the end of the film. Bond's just going to ride off and not worry about him anymore. The thing is, we'd have been deprived of J.W. Pepper, though, then. We, would have, we wouldn't have ever seen him uh, buying his new car. One of the points for me is, well, I actually forgot that there's very little music in this at all. It's actually uses quite a lot of the, the sound of the crowds and the sounds of the, uh, you know, the traffic when they go outside. You know, there's, there's very little reliance on music, that all of the atmosphere is, is created by the actors. There's no real sense that, you know, where we'd normally see other films that they create the drama through the music. It's, it's all created by this sense that Bond is angry and, and you know, he, he needs the Solex, otherwise he's really compromised. Yeah, I think it's uh, more impactful that it's kind of in that public place, isn't it? Maybe similar to Fiona Volpe's death in Thunderball. I quite like those scenes throughout the series where Bond has to interact with regular people. Um, we see that later in The Man with the Golden Gun as well, the uh, the boat chase, some of the tourists. Uh, so I think it's just a shame that they they ruin it with the, the inclusion of JW. <laughs> Yeah, I, th I like the, the structure of how this is shot as well in terms of uh, unwritten. As Bond comes in, there's kind of, over the walkie-talkies, there's kind of a comic interplay between Goodnight and Hip. They're kind of joking how well Bond is doing with the lady, which has a dark humour to it because she's obviously actually been murdered. 
then the kind of the close-ups and the slow pan down to see the gunshot wound. And, you know, it, it sells that a dead body could be sitting there and people not realise. Yeah, absolutely. And, and of course, you know, the, the fairly serious playing of the dialogue and uh, the scene between Christopher Lee and Roger Moore is then kind of uh, offended by the comedy with uh, Mary Goodnight, who I do actually feel quite a lot of sympathy for here. I mean, fundamentally... There's only two major Bond women who are played as comic foils, kind of this one and Jill St. John in Diamonds Are Forever. So Britt Eklant is playing it as she's supposed to, as a kind of clumsy, inept, out-of-her-depth agent. But you think about her in context as well. She's still seething with jealousy from her mistreatment the night before. And she is trying to do the right thing in this scene by following Knickknack. Having heard this completely bizarre story about a midget with a bag of peanuts... I mean, she thinks this is all bonkers, but she's still trying to do the right thing in the midst of it. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it's, it's kind of best intentions, but uh, she's kind of very misguided in her approach, I think. You know, the, the fact it's kind of the oldest trick in the book that she's trying to put the bugging device in the boot of the car and then she gets pushed in. I think we should also mention Knickknack as well. He's, he's kind of not really been mentioned yet. And he's, he is quite pivotal in terms of Scaramanga's plot in this because he has the element of sinister behaviour. But, you know, Knickknack is holding the gun to, to Bond's back. You know, without Knickknack, he could easily just walk away because, you know, Scaramanga can't shoot him at close range with so many people near him because it would draw attention to him. So, you know, Knickknack is kind of pivotal as well in this scene. Pivotal but useless, I would sort of say. I mean, he doesn't seem to notice at all uh, James Bond getting the Solex from off the floor. I mean, Nick Nack doesn't even say anything in this. He's just enjoying his nuts and the fight. It's like he's, he's so caught up in having a day off from the island that he's not actually doing the job he's meant to be doing. Yeah, you've got to wonder how hard they searched not to see the Solex there. Um, <laughs> like, it's bizarre. As you're saying, Adam, there's kind of Scaramanga's backstory well bond is finding the solex i've always felt that a bit of a pity like it is classic villain monologuing and that kind of loses him the battle at that time but i think it is it's a shame that i never really listened in my early viewings to scaramanga's backstory because it was so focused on bond's actions and it's it's such a bizarre backstory that i think it deserved its own attention yeah, definitely. It really gets the colourful sort of um, history of the character. Uh, but I love how emotional Christopher Lee gets into this. He does some lovely things throughout the scene, Lee. He gets genuinely emotional when he's talking about sort of, you know, the elephant, his best trick, putting me on his back. And just the glare he shoots at Lieutenant Hip as well on the way out when he bangs into him. There's almost a sort of subtle racism of that character, or at least a kind of haughtiness uh, to him, which, which Lee just gets that it's a split second moment, but it just tells you so much about that character. It's kind of one of those performances that deserves so much more. He deserved to be in a much better film, you know. If you'd imagine being in something like The Spy Who Loved Me, that would have been a much more chilling display. But he does his best with, with kind of a bad bunch, really. And again, I think Britt Eklund needs credit for that as well. She kind of does her best with what she's given. It's sort of, she's very unfortunate that she's kind of played off as the comedy character almost. There are elements of the film as well where it's obviously there are things that aren't appropriate anymore. I, I did make in my notes, there is a comment where, I can't remember which character says it, but there's a midget. This whole idea that you could even mention a midget being in a film anymore is quite shocking really to modern audiences. But it's it's just, you, there are moments in this scene where you kind of cringe a little bit. Although I did read, Phil, that uh, Hervé Villachez preferred being called a midget. Like, he didn't like being called a dwarf, so uh, it was accepted at the time. Uh, yeah, but your previous idea, Christopher Lee as Stromberg, what a great spy that would have been. I think they missed an opportunity. It should have been Christopher Lee as Dracula. There you go, Bond versus Dracula. 
and then Bond versus Godzilla straight afterwards. On, on that sort of uh, disconnect between the good things and the bad things, uh, we should also just very quickly talk about how um, properly enraged and misogynistic Bond is towards the end of this scene. You feel like later Roger Moore, when they learn how to write for him, would have been much more understanding of Goodnight's uh, predicament rather than just going, oh, women. I mean, why is he so bothered about seducing Goodnight if he hates her so much? He seems to genuinely detest her in this film. Yeah, c- complaining that she's got the car keys was, wasn't really her fault she was the one that was outside yeah didn't didn't bond ask her to look after the car keys because she was driving anyway so it's kind of bond's fault to start with at least she answers the walkie talkie Uh, (laughs) he can find out where she is that's a great delivery as well someone's locked me in the boot so matter of fact it's like it happens often like the previous night she got locked in a closet so she's like now i'm in a boot Maybe she was on a walkie-talkie to someone else, maybe Q or something, while she was in that closet. And that's another thing, that she was probably sleep-deprived on this mission, so her judgment, like all of us, would be impaired by that. And she does then eventually break away out of the car boot, let's not forget. It's not her fault the car's in midair at that point. Uh, I think I, I shared Bond's kind of agreement when Pepper's next to him and he goes, oh no. And that was when I, like, ended the scene. I was like, I agree. Oh, no. So it's on to our main feature of the episode. It's for your ears only, the interview segment. And this week, it was a real treat to invite Jeroen van den Brom, uh, a.k.a. Dutch Bond fan, the YouTuber, into the cubbyhole. Many thousands, hundreds of thousands of views for many of his uh, reviews of the James Bond films. So uh, let's let's get to it. Let's listen to what Dutch Bond fan has to say. Um, so I was born in 1990. Uh, I remember in the early 90s, uh, Moonraker was the one that happened to be on TV one night. I was watching it with my dad. My dad probably won't remember it, but I have vivid memories of, of watching the opening with him. It was the perfect movie to start off with as a kid. So impressed by the skydiving and my dad explaining like, oh, now he's leaning forward and he moves faster in the air. Same with the um, centrifuge scene. He was explaining how the head was becoming heavy. All really interesting as a kid. Uh, I must have been around seven or eight at that particular point. Uh, I remember being impressed by the title sequences because, you know, naked women and stuff it was, i mean the suggestion of it as a kid it was like whoa now i'm watching watching something adult here brosson of course was bond in the early 90s and i remember seeing him on the magazines and then die another day uh, i really started off with some of the, the notoriously worst ones but when i was 12 die another day came out uh, I, as a kid i enjoyed it and i just slowly made my way through the franchise and over the years as i matured i just collected the more and more of the um, information on it and knowledge and now i'm this uh, semi super fan so to speak great and um and what first inspired you then um, from being a fan to go on and make uh, your own youtube videos uh, reviewing the films and how did you kind of settle on that style uh, that you adopted for that first sort of recapping 007 series Oh, yeah. All of that is a long story. Um, Yeah, I'll just go a little bit from the beginning. As I was a bit younger, I had this username on the internet. It wasn't Dutch Barn fan yet. It was Dutch Budokai fan. And Budokai was a a name from the Dragon Ball Z Budokai games. It was like a fighting game thing. I was 15 at the time. And that was like my only internet username that I used on like a random forum. I I was just a kid. 
So one day, 2007, I registered on YouTube and I gave it about two seconds of thought and I just used my internet username, Dutch Budokai fan. Then I started making videos on YouTube. It wasn't on Bond yet. I started doing the Grand Theft Auto video games under the name Dutch Budokai fan. And I did that for a couple of years, but I, I got older and I was always this Bond fan and I always wanted to do more with it. So I started watching uh, videos a lot. Calvin Dyson at the time, I'm sure you, you know Calvin Dyson. Yeah, he was kind of starting out as well around this period, like 2010-ish. But Haphazard Stuff was always my big inspiration. He's this uh, major content creator who was pretty big, not necessarily on YouTube, but on his website. And he was all of his stuff was um, shared a lot on forums. And he did really extensive reviews on GoldenEye and made his way through, especially from GoldenEye onwards. But all the stuff he did pre-GoldenEye, he did never plan out. So that inspired me to immediately plan something out from the beginning, make sort of a format and make sure not to copy haphazard stuff or Calvin Dyson. Those were the two guys I knew back then. And the humor was the, the one thing I tried to come up with. Like my videos have this certain style, like they're, they're very blunt in a way. You know, I'm always talking about, oh, Bond goes there and he does this chick. And that's kind of deliberate. You know, it's a style I chose to adapt and, and it, it caught on eventually. And I called them the recapping 007 series. And I, I wanted to make sure that if I started Dr. No and I made my way over to Spectre, you could see they're part of the same series. So I wanted it to be fully planned out. And initially I had a Grand Theft Auto audience. So my first video, Dr. No, got around 50 views. And all of the comments were like, great, when is the next Grand Theft Auto video coming out? No, no one was commenting on Bond. I didn't have the audience yet, but I just kept on making them. I did the From Russia With Love one. Uh, and people were so used to calling me DBF because of Dutch Budokai fan. So I wanted to keep that intact. And I made it Dutch Bond fan. That's basically the story behind it. <laughs> and a couple of years later, now some of these recapping 007 videos have been watched a half a million times. So they caught on eventually, but, you know, with patience, lots of patience. Yeah, so it was, it's just sort of your perseverance as well, just to be able to just keep at it with the different videos. Because I take it, obviously, is it quite a, a labor-intensive process to put the videos together and sort of obviously, are, are they quite difficult decisions in the editing process of, of having to think, well, I'd, I'd like to add something in or, you know, you have to sort of take elements out that you might like to, to keep in? Yeah, it they're not necessarily complex to make or, or complicated. I, you could see that they're pretty basic in terms of how they are made technically uh, but they are definitely time consuming to make the early ones took me around 30 hours in total and now around 40 hours and remember sticking almost 50 hours in the the latest ones like the skyfall inspector episodes but it got more fun every time because by the time i reached the, the roger moore era they they sort of gained their first audience so people were really waiting for them every time to to be released so it was really excited to be in this little tiny space knowing that whatever i come up with is going to be watched by thousands of people it still blows my mind to this very day like i'm just this i still view myself as this completely regular guy from holland who just expresses his opinion in a weird kind of quirky way uh, but people seem to like it so that's uh they are time consuming but it, it's a it's an incredible hobby i love doing it 
Yeah, much like us with this, although we dream of audiences of uh, half a million at the moment. Um, uh, the thing I really love about watching them is, is obviously how entertaining they are, but they're also incredibly informative about uh, the background to each of the films. Um, do you do a lot of research into that or are you kind of just pulling from your own knowledge for, for those bits? Good question. Yeah, um, I think a bit of both. Some of the things I did research, like uh, I grew to learn more as I made these videos. But like you said, a lot of it is indeed just from my own back catalog of gaining knowledge about Bond throughout the years. And my notes are usually the jokes I'm going to make. That's where, where, where they start out with, like most of the jokes that make it into the video. <laughs> that's that's what I start out with when I when I plan making these. So, yeah, that's uh, uh, that's how they are kind of born. That's great. And, and obviously, kind of like us, we did sort of a recap in our first series of the, the 24 films. And were there any surprises when you kind of look back through the films? And you, did you find films that you were going back to that you thought, actually, I enjoy this more? Or did you find some that were quite underrated or overrated? I think a lot of us have like rankings of, of, of all the Bond films. Mine changes all the time. Like usually the bottom and the top ones stay similar, but in the middle, a lot of it changes. I remember being younger, not liking For Your Eyes Only and The Living Daylights as much. Now I love these, these two. The best in the, the, the kind of Cold War-esque spy thriller uh, Bond films. Fundable, I grew to, to like a little bit less, for example. I still, I still enjoy it because I just love Connery in it. And I think it has like one of the best casts of Bond girls. Uh, it, it's still an incredible movie, but slow in parts, in my opinion. And I don't know if this is the case for you guys, but for me, it also depends on on the mood I'm in and on if I watch it with someone that that could kind of uh, have an influence on, on how I view the movie. For example, I started watching the Bond films with my girlfriend recently, also for, for the channel, and I sort of really lifted on her experience. So I, I think it, it really has an influence on you with who you're watching these films with as well. I was actually going to ask you a little bit further about those videos where you're, you're right. introducing your girlfriend to the Bond films. And have you found that an, an easy or a difficult experience? What's it been like sort of seeing them through her eyes and specifically, I guess, a, a female pair of eyes? Yeah, it, it surprises me every time. Like, I was really surprised to like Tomorrow Never Dies much more than Goldeneye. Well, not much more, but a little more. Um, I was surprised she did not like Goldfinger at all. She, she's mainly into the modern Bond films. She kind of, she, she dozes off. It, not enough action in, in, in Goldfinger. Uh, and we're going to be doing Dine Another Day soon, which I'm not looking forward to, but I think the internet is. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's very refreshing to watch it with a, with a girl because they just, they're so focused on completely different things than, than we are. Um, I could recommend it to everyone to occasionally watch these films with casuals instead of, you know, people that know every single detail like us. <laughs> I was going to ask just the next question. Um, you've also, like us, gone into um, sort of uh, ranking elements of the Bond films, making lists. And of the ones you've done, um, which were the most difficult to decide upon, either in terms of the order or sort of choosing what to leave out of them? Top six Bond actors. Yeah, that, that was like picking your favorite parents. I, I don't know if you ever tried ranking the six Bond actors. For me, 
it's easiest to say uh, Connery is my personal favorite and I'm not particularly a fan of Lazenby as Bond. I love the person George Lazenby. I, I love his story and how he became Bond. I, I love the Becoming Bond documentary he was featured in that, that Hulu did. Uh, but the middle is so close to me. Like to me, I love them all. The, the, the question I, I get all the time is when are you going to do the top 25 Bond film rankings? That's the, the most awaited video at the moment on my channel. And I want to include No Time to Die in it. So I just keep on waiting for it to be released to, to make that video um, because I want it to be around for a while so it can be uh, relevant still with, with No Time to Die included. But um, yeah, still a little bit of a wait, isn't it? <laughs> Well, I was going to say, this kind of brings us on to the next question as well, because what are your hopes for No Time to Die? You can't, obviously, it's been delayed so many times. We're, we're all sort of mm -hmm. champing at the bit to be able to get to cinemas again, to be able to see it. But do you, do you think Daniel Craig's going to go out on a high with, with No Time to Die as his finale? I certainly hope so. Um, fingers crossed on that one. If you if you look at the record, uh, you know, Connery, uh, Moore, uh, Brosson, each of them, uh, you could argue, did not go out on the highest note with with their last films. So I could only hope for Craig to to go out on a high note. My hopes that they're kind of really basic. It's weird. These are hopes I've never had in terms of any Bond film yet, but. Because of the controversy surrounding the film, I'm just hoping Bond doesn't die in this one. You know, if they do it in a convincing way, maybe it could be compelling. But to me, I just, yeah, I don't know if I'm on board with that. Uh, same with this, this. This also could be a very basic thing. But because of all the Lashana Lynch talk uh, of her being 007, I'm hoping Craig would be in the gun barrel at the opening of the film. And I hope it's at the opening of the film, really basic stuff. I hope the titles will say uh, Daniel Craig as Ian Fleming's James Bond 007, you know, because of the 007 controversy being uh, no me now. And of course, you know, a, a really exciting Bond film. I, I have high hopes for uh, Rami Malek as the villain. I'm a big fan of uh, Ana de Armas. Uh, I hope she gets more screen time. I don't think so. I, I think it will just be the blue dress scene we, we keep seeing her in. <laughs> so I think she'll be another uh, Monica Bellucci, basically, who just appears 10 minutes uh, tops. And th uh, again, this could be controversial, but I'm very skeptical on the whole Lashana Lynch character. You know, we could be saying like, oh, this is progressive. This is what we need. And I'm all for getting female lead roles and I'm all for diversity as well. And, but I don't think we should force it upon Bond. That's just, that's my opinion. <laughs> but I have high hopes, definitely. Yeah, me too. I, I don't know how much truth there is to it, but I have a friend who knows people who worked on it. And apparently Daniel Craig isn't actually leaving the series. He's going to stay on as a kind of Q-style grandee of MI6. Oh my God, as really? Shana Lynch carries on as 007. So who knows, basically? Who knows? Um, but sort of following up on that, are, are you kind of happy the Craig era is ending now? I mean, he's been in the role longer than anyone else, I guess. And... And where would you love to see the films go next as a kind of, you know, with whoever, whether it's Tom Hardy or whether it isn't, where do you hope they go next? Right. Um, first, to, to comment on what you just said, that's the first time I've, I've heard that. But I definitely don't hope Craig is going to be the other Q uncle and definitely don't hope Nomi is going to be 007. Maybe that's just me, but... Uh... 
yeah this is a whole and it's like opening a can of worms isn't it in these days to, to, to even say that you know you could be labeled all kinds of things for just wishing bond stay, stays male and bonds stays uh the way he is but yeah as of what i'm hoping for after uh, no time to die i think craig has had a a nice run and if they do wrap up the storyline in a nice way i i'm ready to move on to the next guy and and you just mentioned tom hardy I'm a, a big fan of, of getting him as Bond. I don't believe it will happen. I don't think it's, you know, he's too much star power. Age could play a role, but I definitely feel there is huge potential in getting Christopher Nolan aboard. And again, this is this is all more fantasy these days. But since Nolan is such a Bond fan, I think it could really work if he does like a Dark Knight trilogy type of trilogy for Bond. And I think Tom Hardy in combination with Nolan is proven to be a winning combination. I mean, you could picture a poster of like Tom Hardy from the back in just a suit. And it, it would just say 007 as a teaser poster. And people, even no one who's a bar fan is like, I, I need to watch that stuff. I need to see that. And I don't see any of the stuff I just mentioned happening. But that's, that's what, what I would dream to be uh, the next direction. So uh, numerous Dutch actors have featured in the Bond films, of course, and are any of their performances particular favourites of yours? And I guess, does their Bond work in any way contrast with what their reputations are as, as actors back in the Netherlands, if they're sort of known for kind of doing other stuff, I guess? Oh, very interesting question. Yeah, there are there are a couple of Dutch actors and actresses in the series, not not as much as like the friends or anything. Um, of course, the big one is Famke Janssen, who plays uh, uh, Xenia on the top. Yes, he's not really on the radar in the Netherlands. He's really an international star who's been in Hollywood for, for years. So you don't see her too much on national TV. I'm, every time I do hear her speak Dutch, I'm always, I always get, have to get used to, wow, she can, she can even speak our language. You know, obviously she can, but that's how far away she, she is. Uh, there is this small cameo role in Tomorrow Never Dies of uh, Daphne Deckers, who is the PR girl of Elliot Carver. She's around a lot, but she's mainly a TV host on various TV shows, very well known here. And every time there is a new Bond film around, you see her uh, in the talk shows, always mentioning her, her two minute scene in, in Tomorrow Never Dies, being so proud of it. And kind of she talks about it if she's really a, a major Bond girl, which fair enough, she, she kind of isn't. But uh, it, it's fun. She, she hasn't changed, though. She, she pretty much still looks the same as she did in uh, 97. Um, the other Dutch actor is the one that shares my name, Jeroen Krabbe in uh, The Living Daylights. Uh, he's very well known here. Uh, so is his son. And they're, they're both uh, pretty well known uh, guys. I'm not too much of a big fan of what he did with Koskov, mainly, I guess, because I, I know him too well. To me, he does not come off as a Russian general at all. I can I can hear the Dutch accent. It's like me talking English, basically. And it's... <laughs> Uh, but not with Famke Janssen. She nails it as this this Russian psychopath who, who sees it insane in that movie. I love her performance. Uh, Jeroen Krabbe, yeah, yeah. No, I think we've had far better films than what he did with it. So to me, the the main Dutch prize goes to uh, Famke Janssen with ease uh, out of the Dutch actors. I think that those are the three. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. No, those are the ones that I was hoping you'd talk about. So no, that, that's <laughs> great. Um... 
I guess sort of a big question. Uh, you've talked about um, ranking the Bonds and then Connery being a number one. Um, w- uh, which are your other sort of favourite films of the franchise? Which are the eras that really do it for you and, and vice versa? Which are the ones that you kind of just don't really quite get along with as well? I basically have like a sentimental favourite Bond film and an objective favourite Bond film. To me, the sentimental one is Licence to Kill, which I don't necessarily carry more nostalgia for than others, but I just really think it's such an enjoyable film. Uh, I do see its flaws. I I do think it's a bit of TV production-ish in eras, but I love the Bond villain in it. I think Robert Davi is my favorite Bond villain. Far from the most iconic, but definitely so real. And I love what he did with it. As for my objective favorite, that would be Casino Royale. I think the best Bond film we've had. Incredible movie. Craig just blew it out of the water. It's pure Fleming. It's that, that film will stand the test of time for years to come. As of what's era, eras I like, uh, in terms of the music, you may or may not know, I'm, I'm a big fan of the 80s uh, title songs, all of them. Duran, Duran, A Few to a Kill, as cheesy and uh, as much of a guilty pleasure it is, is <laughs> my favorite title song. Ah, different era. Least favorite, definitely Diamonds Are Forever, uh, still to this very day. Uh, <laughs> Quantum of Solace never, never got aboard on, on that. I kind of was in denial when I watched it in the cinema, but it just went downhill and never grew on me. And yeah, Diamonds, I just think there's so much wrong with it. Blofeld in drag, um, cheesy special effects. I, I picture right now the laser coming from space and then like the Asian guard on fire. If you if you look at the effects on uh, from Russia with Love, they had people on fire on the boats with like like a budget far smaller, but it looked a lot better. And that was a decade before, so I think there's no excuse. Um, what do you make of the Roger Moore era? We must ask because because I always think Roger Moore is so peculiarly British in just the sense of humour he sort of brings to them. I've always been sort of fascinated how that translates. Where, where do you sort of stand on Roger? No, I'm a big fan of, of Roger Moore. It does translate well. I think it has to do with, you know, I, I'm not necessarily offended by, by stuff that, that doesn't necessarily age well. He could do stuff in the most charming, likable way. Like he could get away with the, the goodnight scene where he shoves her in the closet and then kind of <laughs> mingles two women after doing the deed with with Maud Adams see he just wakes her up like oh your turn will come and it's it's to me it's hysterical <laughs> it's you know in the 70s that that you could do that stuff and I, yeah to me it's amazing his his humor is his facial expressions the, the eyebrows he's like Rowan Atkinson in ways he could speak with his his face like the when um, Magda in Octopussy says, uh, that's my little octopussy. And then the face he makes, like hysterical, massive fan of, of Roger Moore. And I was gutted uh, when he died in 2017 now, right? Yeah. 2017. And I was going to ask you, and as well, um, with kind of the social media, sort of the boom in popularity with social media, obviously we're all kind of in lockdown at the moment, but it's kind of helped us to, as Bond fans, to all come together as a community and sort of talk about our interests. And do you, obviously as a YouTuber, do you think it's been really important to be able to, to kind of communicate to the wider Bond community? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I recently made the the conscious choice to to kind of take it more serious because the channel has been growing a lot. It, it reached at this at the moment of recording. I'm at. 31,000 subscribers. Uh, and I still had this kind of laid back attitude towards it for a long time to be like, well, it's a hobby and I'll do something when I feel inspired and, and upload a major part then. But in, in recent months, especially, I started to, you know, people were supporting me on Patreon and they, they were in a chat room and they were getting rewards, but not necessarily a lot of consistency in my uploads, I felt. So I was like really self-critical there. Like, yeah, you better step up and, and keep it up at least to do something weekly with it, which I have been keeping up quite steadily for the last couple of months. Uh, and the community is, I've, I've rarely experienced any negative uh, negativity in the community of Bond fans. It's always a lot of love, even on my channel. They're all very loving. And so are the, the Patreon supporters I talk to regularly on my Discord server. I'm now really talking a lot to the other content creators. I think Joe Darlington just sent me a bunch of voice clips. I'm talking to haphazard stuff, which to me is crazy because I used to look up to these guys before I was in the Bond world. And now they view me as sort of an equal in terms of content creators. I talk to David a lot, David Saritsky, of course. So yeah, it's it's an incredible community to be part of. And it's very easy to keep up the consistency if you know like what you're doing it for. And yeah, so good question. Well, uh, Jeroen, we could obviously talk to you all night, but I guess it's a kind of wrap-up question. Um, if you had to name one reason, which for you is the one why Bond has sort of endured as long as it has and has remained as popular as it has, what would you kind of say that is? To me, it's the, the way it always reinvents itself. It's always relevant. And Bond is so, sort of the, the hero we kind of need, isn't it? It's like, for me personally, it's it's a very male-centered thing. Everybody has their thing of why they like Bond. To me, it's like every man wants to win. Every man wants to say the right things at the right time. You know, I, I think I've mentioned this in one of my videos and, and get the girl and uh, the, the cars and the, the, the fantasy that to me, that's, that's really important, but it, yeah, it's to the test of time among all audiences, it reinvents itself and it's always of the times. And I just hope they keep on doing that in, in the right way that we Bond fans enjoy. Um, like we talked about in, in, during this podcast, I hope they listen to what, what most Bond fans want and continue that way and, and keep on the reinventing in a in a nice way without involving the politics too much is my conclusion so that was Jeroen van den Brom, aka Dutch Bond fan. Uh, really interesting chat with DBF. Absolutely love his recapping 007 series over on YouTube. Our podcast strikes a similar tone, I think, to his channel. Kind of a strong passion for the franchise, but with the addition of some well-placed jokes and good-natured derision of uh, some of the more silly elements. Uh, so yeah, lovely chap. Such an asset to the Bond community. And uh, hopefully we'll have him back on the show in the future. Yeah, and his videos are great on his uh, YouTube channel, Dutch Bond Fan. Definitely check them out, uh, particularly the later ones, actually, he's been doing with his uh, introducing his uh, girlfriend to the Bond films. They're quite fascinating. I, I have to say, I've loved all the interviews this series. I mean, you know, from learning about what it was like to actually work on the films, you know, particularly from people whose contributions sometimes get a bit overlooked. It's been fascinating to hear from them. But likewise, as it was with John Orty and Robbie Sims, just being able to sit down and chat Bond with other massive Bond fans. It's such a thrill and a pleasure to us. So thanks for everyone. Everyone who, who has uh, chatted to us this series. 
So next up is the 007 best segment in which we rank the seven best in different Bond categories. And this week, quite a fun one to end the series. We're going to rank our favorite Roger Moore quips. Well, there's plenty to choose from, so let's kick off with... Number seven. From the man with the golden gun, it's this moment. Ah! I've lost my charm! Not from where I'm standing. So this is a really perfect, puntastic end to a slightly ridiculous uh, sequence. Bond having to fight off about four bad guys while he's just swallowed uh, a golden bullet. And he's clearly getting some immediate indigestion issues. Uh, all accompanied, um, well, certainly earlier in the scene, to John Barry's dirty saxophone. Uh, what do we reckon to this one and the scene around it? Yes, it's one of the more unusual ways to start a Bond film. It's, it's certainly never been repeated and, and it probably kind of sums up the man with the golden gun within within the opening sort of 15 minutes it's it's very bizarre but it kind of gives roger moore his first opportunity of the film to get a great quip in so slightly unusual but you know at least roger is able to use a bit of physical acting obviously fighting off the goons and and then is able to be with the the belly dancer as well so there's a nice little mix in this scene i think i think it kind of sets a trend for a very fantastic film (laughs) and uh I can't really see Connery pulling it off. I think it's a, it's definitely like this is a, a more quip, more than a Bond quip. And it's kind of he's he's more a lover than a fighter. Yeah, I think I, I agree with you, Nick. I think this uh, Connery couldn't really. It's kind of similar to the uh, is it Goldfinger where he uh, shocking, positively shocking. We've kind of moved away, haven't we, in the Roger era to a more comedic style, making fun of the uh, the situation and the female that he's been entangled with. I think what I love about it as well is the fact that he's, he's just had a fight sequence. He's got this bullet going through his innards and he's sort of at the door straightening his tie and he's thinking, I've got this great line. I don't know if I've got the energy and the patience to do it. And then he's like, yeah, no, I will do it, actually. Uh, and it pays off great in the queue lab next scene, doesn't it, when uh, they're analysing the bullet and he goes, you have no idea what it went through to get here, Q. Number six. From Moonraker, we have... Do you know him? Not socially. His name's Jaws. He kills people. So another great comedy line, of course, from Moonraker. This is where Bond is kind of suspended in midair. So it's already quite an unusual scene for the uh, for the film. And of course, he has to defeat Jaws once again. So it's it's a little quip, obviously going back to the spy who loved me as well, and the fact that you know Bond has already met with Jaws and kind of knows what he's up against. So it's it's a nice little interplay between Holly Goodhead and and Bond. Yeah, I quite like this one because it's a bit different to most of the Rogerisms that we have throughout his tenure as Bond and on this list as well. Most of the time, it's kind of after an event, after uh, he's defeated a villain or, a, or an amusing aside, uh, whereas this one is in conversation and it, it's a bit jarring when you first hear it, but it uh, very succinctly highlights the danger that they're in with, uh, with Jaws on their tail. I suppose kind of recognising that, well, Jaws is obviously such a popular character that they brought him back, which was unusual for a henchman. And so the audience knows what Jaws is capable of. Bond is like us, but the other characters don't. So it's kind of stating it. And it's funny because we know <laughs> we know what Jaws can do and that he is really dangerous. So it's definitely not, he doesn't know him socially. Can you imagine if he did know him socially, if just uh, Jaws popped up at a gentleman's club or a casino and he's just sort of playing a little blackjack? It'd be very weird, wouldn't it? You'd just be like, no, you're not, you're not a member of this club. Get out. 
No, I agree, Adam. It's difficult to see how Bond and Jaws could ever be in a social situation together. I don't really get the feeling that they go on holiday together, to be honest, or, you know, that Bond would get invited to Jaws stag do with Dolly. I don't think that would be on the cards anytime soon. Why is it with you and stag do's, Phil, bringing them into every episode? <laughs> well, I think by the end of the film, of course, Jaws has become a good guy. So you can imagine him maybe joining some, maybe him and Dolly are big on the after dinner speech tour. You know, like they, you get those people who are recovering alcoholics talking about how bad they were in the past. And the Jaws could just say how low he'd been killing everyone and that Dolly made him see the light. It would be particularly funny that considering these are two of the most mute characters in the entire series. They get one line of dialogue between them in two films. <laughs> number five and in at number five we get this moment at the beginning of live and let die sure magnetism darling so this of course is the the start of the film with the italian agent miss caruso being hidden away in bond's apartment one of the only times we see his apartment strikes a lovely comedic tone i feel sets the the roger moore era off to a good start uh, in my opinion womanizing and uh, at the same time dealing with uh, with his boss coming around at a, a random hour to give him his uh, his assignments yeah i think this is a great way to introduce roger moore's uh, time in the bond role it's, it's just a great way to set that kind of roger moore template as well the fact that we are moving away from connery and it's it is going to be a bit more tongue-in-cheek and we're going to have a lot more puns to come and it, it probably helped him to relax into the role as well yeah and of course that's the tone for roger moore uh, locking women in uh, closets as well we've only just talked about mary goodnight it's, it's great actually that it ends that sort of whole benny hill fado fast sequence uh, as well you know with as you've said people running through doors money penny sort of being in on it but the actual effect of the watch unzipping the dress is quite a good practical effect as well i mean it was just a bit of a string job and i know that it took quite a few takes to get it right interestingly there's no cue of course to explain how this gadget works and yet bonds as roger moore already knows how it works so maybe this is something that he's requested, like gone into Cube Branch and said, well, you know, when I'm there with my ladies, I'd love a watch that unzips them for me. Maybe that might explain the very end of the Roger Moore era as well, where we get Q and his little robot dog. Q is actually, he's not being a pervert. He's just wondering whether Bond is using these gadgets for their, for their intended purpose. Yeah, I also love that this is the second person after Sylvia Trench who actually makes it into Bond's apartment. So I wonder if there was just a missed opportunity. She's shoved into the wardrobe, turns next to her, we pan out. And it's just Eunice Gason who says, well, I've been here for 10 years now. Do you think Eunice is still playing golf in the cupboard? She's just uh, still trying to practice the golf shots. And in at number four is this line from Octopussy. Are you with our group? No, ma'am, I'm with the economy at all. Uh, so again, a brilliant end line to a particularly daft but quite entertaining sequence. Uh, in this instance, the whole jungle run escape from uh, Kamal Khan's palace uh, moment. Uh, Kamal Khan, Louis Jordan, gets a great follow-up line in this too when he has that, uh, Mr. Bond is indeed a very rare breed, soon to be made extinct. So it's a part of a lovely one too, this, but I think a particularly funny gag from Roger at this point. Yeah, I particularly love the quite dismissive way that he, because obviously it's an American tour group in, in the river and the quite dismissive and grumpy way that he kind of delivers the line. And it's just, you know, it's almost that very sort of prim and proper British way of, you know, saying don't bother me, I'm I'm not amused type thing. It's it's just a great way that he, he delivers that. It almost has a improvised feel to it. You can imagine Roger Moore kind of climbing onto a boat after filming Bond doing something extraordinary and someone's like, what's happening? Are you with us? And he's just so fed up. 
Yeah, I mean, he has had quite a harrowing experience with all those animals, but with a bit of fun with the Tarzan noise in the middle. But uh, yeah, I think that, and also has to go through the river, doesn't he, to, in order to get to the boat. So I think it was Rocky Taylor, the stump man, who had to do that one. And he was covered in leeches when he was doing it. So quite a difficult one to uh, to pull off. So I imagine if that had happened in real life, Roger would be a bit uh, annoyed by the time he gets to the boat. And uh, Michael G. Wilson's on the boat as well, so... Uh... I never spotted that it was Michael G. Wilson on the boat. That's amazing. Uh, I love it, but he also probably ruins that safari suit as well. It's almost the props team commenting on the fact they don't particularly like this suit on him because the various tuxedos Bond wears always seem to make it out in pristine condition. And yet this safari suit's been absolutely wrecked throughout this chase, uh, whether it was uh, telling the tiger to sit or the snake to hiss off. Number three. Okay, so in at number three, we have this quite famous line from A View to a Kill. I imagine you'll spend a lot of time in the saddle. Yes, I love an early morning ride. I'm an early riser myself. The childish part of me always loves this line. It's, it's just so ridiculous and childish. It is probably the most schoolboy-esque of, of all Roger Moore's one-liners. It's just so it, it's just so unnecessary, but it's just so funny as well because it, it's all just innuendo and just all it's all obviously in, in the mind of the viewer with the jokes that he is making, but it, it just somehow makes it just even more entertaining. Obviously, we, we've not always been complimentary about A View to the Kill, but for some reason, this is always one of those memorable moments from the Bond franchise. I've often expressed my kind of fanboy worship of Roger Moore and, and of Alison Doody in this scene. And it's it's just so it's just such good fun in in my opinion. You kindly added Roger Moore in there. I was gonna I was expecting you just to say Alison Doody. I think that's the thing, Phil. You said the scene, like Alison Doody barely has any other scenes, but this exchange is so memorable and let's be honest, pretty cringy as well. That you 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 remember Jenny Flex, even though she's got very little else to do. You also kind of can't imagine him doing it with any other character. It's sort of you can't really imagine Scarpin going, you know, I'm I'm always better in the saddle. And it wouldn't have really worked, you know. And you can't really imagine it with Mayday either. It would have been a lot more sinister if Mayday had delivered that line. So you know, Jen, Jenny Flex is kind of playing up to Bond in that scene. She's she's not going to be turned by his childish one liner. She she sort of plays along with it. So it's uh, it's just a great fun little scene, I think. Yeah, I think the two things I really like about this is, is the fact that we're sort of into innuendo overdrive. It's like one after one after one. And I think it's because it's Roger Moore as James Bond, but he's with a character called Jenny Flex, and he's playing a character called James Sinjin Smythe, who himself would probably love an inappropriate comment at an attractive young lady in high riding breeches. But also it's the fact you don't even really see their faces or reactions to this as they're li- delivering it. They're coming around this spiral staircase. We're just distracted by Godfrey Tibbet trying to lug these massive suitcases up there. Number two. And in at number two, just missing out on the top spot, is this from The Men with the Golden Gun. I'm now aiming precisely at your groin, so speak now or forever hold your peace. So this one, of course, coming in Lazar's workshop, supposed to be in Macau, but filmed in Hong Kong. Yeah, this one, just an excellent, I think this one encapsulates Roger Moore's quips throughout his uh, tenure, I think. Just an incredibly witty line. I, I might rate this one higher than usual, just based on the fact that Roger Moore loved it so much. In in his book, My Word is My Bond, he particularly mentions this as his, his favorite quip. And you kind of feel like he loved saying it and he delivers it brilliantly. 
So that's why I think it ranks so highly amongst all of us. Yeah, it's kind of one of those lines you always imagine it's, it probably leaves the cast kind of increases because they'd, they'd just not be able to, to deliver it without kind of having a little smirk on their face. So it's it's just a great little interplay between those two characters. And again, the sense that, you know, there is the undertone of innuendo and there's also the undertone of actual real genuine sinister kind of ruthlessness. The fact that, you know, although it is a bit silly, he's going to shoot at him. So the, there's elements of comedy and elements of drama that we, we always love from the Roger Moore era. Well, I kind of love how torturous this line is. I mean, I mean, it takes such a lot of writing and setting up the scene to get there, like that I'm designing a gun for a man with three fingers. You know, it's almost like they started with the line and then worked back and thought, okay, how on earth do we actually get there? And then they do manage to get there. This whole scene with Lazar and following the trail of the golden bullets, it kind of adds to the film's kinkiness, doesn't it? I mean, earlier in this section, we had one in the navel of a belly dancer. They're all off to the bottoms up club after this. I mean, it's a really sort of silly strain that runs nicely through the early section of the film. I think the humour as well really, like makes up for what Bond's doing because he's actually being quite brutal in this scene, like turning the gun on him. It could come across as almost villainous, but you know Roger can sell it with this kind of cheeky line. Yeah, I think that's why it works so well, because the funny line is a contrast to the situation that he's in. He's not really in his element here as he's being stared at by an old Chinese lady who I like to think is Lazar's mother. And he's turning the tables on this gunmaker. So it could be a hairy situation that he manages to get out of quite nicely. And you've got to imagine that Lazar is used to working with uh, a lot of bad characters. So you've really got to uh, draw a a scary image to um, intimidate him, I suppose. And this quip certainly does that. Number one. And finally, in at number one, and I think this was the only thing we've ever all voted for at number one. There was no differentiation at all. It's obviously the final line from The Spy Who Loved Me, which is, Bond, what do you think you're doing? Keeping the British end up, sir. I mean, everything around this line makes it brilliant, doesn't it? The fact that you've got three old men staring into the bathos of the fact that Roger says it and then pulls down those very frilly blinds and the fact that the honky-tonk end music comes in afterwards as well. It's the perfect mic drop moment for the film. Well, let's not forget as well, there's also that quite tense moment where obviously Anya Massava has completed the mission with Bond and she's then holding the gun against him and it's... It's this really tense moment when, you know, you don't know if she's actually going to shoot him or not, obviously, in an act of revenge. And then you get that great little payoff where the champagne cork just pops. From that moment, we're then just into a completely absurdist point where, you know, you've got Q, M and Freddie Gray, and it's just, they're all just looking in, sort of very bemused, kind of wondering what he's up to. It's almost like an up you to his superiors, really. It's just Bond going, you know, I've completed the mission, now I'm going to enjoy myself until the next assignment. You know, this is, it can't all be work. Yeah, this line is just iconic. It's silly, but it's definitely funny. And it kind of made the ending of Spy Who Loved Me so much that they, you know, they tried to replicate it so many times afterwards with different levels of success. But yeah, this line, and um, as you say, we all agreed on it. It sticks in the mind, and it's just the end of one of the most fun Bond films. Yeah, I'd go along with that. I think the the replicas, obviously, certainly not as good if you think to the world is not enough. That was uh, pretty woeful, wasn't it, in terms of a, of a copy? 
But yeah, I think this one, excellent. I think it should be a joint win, really, for Roger and Sir Freddie Gray. I think his question and the, the intonation in his voice as well of what do you think you're doing really, really pays off the line so well. Oh, I would throw Bernard Lee in there as well as them. I don't think anyone quite said 007 as disapprovingly as he did. And a shame they could only do it within one more film. They discovered it so late on into his tenure. Because when uh, there's the zero G sex at the end of Moonraker, he does a very different but still very similar So next up is the James Bond Film Club. Last week we heard about the acclaimed Road to Perdition featuring current Bond Daniel Craig, but I believe we're off for a bit of bully this week. It's over to Adam. Oh, Martin, if only we were off to a a bit of bully and that this was the feature film version of the Jim Bowen uh, game show. Uh, This is Bullseye, a 1990 comedy crime caper from Michael Winner. You know, calm down, dear. I'm actually a good driver. Um, written by Leslie Brickus and starring Sir Roger Moore and Sir Michael Caine. And all these guys were best mates together. And presumably they had a lot more fun making this film than it is to watch. So in it, Michael Caine plays Sidney Lipton, who is a grifter with a terrible fake nose who's just come out of jail. Roger Moore plays his old mate, Gerald Bradley Smith. Uh, and he plays him with an equally terrible Cockney accent. Uh, and these two reunite with their former old flame to both of them called Willie, played by Sally Kirkland, and they hatch a plan to impersonate two government scientists and steal some diamonds they're keeping in a safety deposit box. And the reason they're going to impersonate these scientists is because they are direct doppelgangers. So Michael Caine is also playing Dr. Daniel Hickler, this time with a terrible American accent. And Roger Moore is also playing Sir John Bavistock, who mercifully is just allowed to be Roger Moore with no bad accents or noses of any kind. However, once they commit the robbery, it then turns out that the scientists are also on the take and that they're planning to profiteer from a clean energy formula that Hitler has invented. So MI5 and the CIA get Sidney and Gerald to keep going undercover as Hitler and Bavistock to stop the formula falling into enemy hands. But of course, the real Hitler and Bavistock escape and it's, oh no, which one of them's in this scene now? We just don't know for the rest of the film, which is a complete hodgepodge of horny dogs, accidental brothel visits, exploding haggises, awkward fourth wall breaking, Patsy Kensit, German nymphomaniacs, Roger in bad wigs, and John Cleese in a cameo as man on the beach in Barbados who looks like John Cleese. Um, This is a classic film de Michael winner by which I mean it's utter rubbish. The camera works all over the shot. The editing is confusing. The script is a hot mess. And there's scantily clad women in virtually every scene for no apparent reason. And uh, like I say, they're all best mates making this film together. You know, Winner, Kane, Moore, Leslie Brickus, the scriptwriter, who is a, is a great lyricist. I mean, he wrote a lot of the lyrics for the great Bond songs. But no, th- this isn't a particularly great film. I'm going to throw to Nick now, because I know that he's also seen this one this week. Nick, what did you reckon to Bullseye? Wow. I think the best way this can be viewed is as Roger Moore's home videos. It has his daughter, Michael Caine, apparently his agent tried to convince him not to do it, but he just wanted to do a film with Roger. And so it's just all over the place. And incredibly, there's another James Bond connection in that the editor was Terry Rawlings, who five years later would work on Goldeneye. He's the editor, but I don't think he put in his best efforts in this, or perhaps the footage was just such a disgrace. I don't know. If you have to watch this, there's some things which will burn in your mind, like uh, a scene where 
Roger and uh, Michael Kane essentially pimp out several dogs in an attempt to tire out <laughs> a dog who has, for some reason, got a key attached to his collar. To think this was only five years after Roger had been bombed, and only recently Michael Caine had done Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, which I would recommend watching instead of this. It's it's quite shocking, really. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Michael Caine and Roger Moore are great screen actors in the right role, but versatility just isn't their strong suit. And they're the last two people you'd get playing dual roles in a film, particularly when so much of the comedy rests on you confusing, which is which in each scene. I mean, Michael Caine in particular gets the occasional good slapstick laugh. He runs over a tug-of-war rope, which then the two teams lift, and obviously it goes up his kill, uh, and there's a nice moment. There's also a good running joke where the, the scientist he's impersonating has a very healthy lifestyle. So throughout this very long trip to Scotland, he's forced to eat tofu and, like, just bits of cauliflower and all the rest of it. So when he finally gets to the hotel, he orders, in a very long-winded way, this massive steak and, like, huge side orders. But most of the jokes are just bangingly obvious. You can see them from about a mile away. Or at their worst, they're completely misogynistic and racist. There's, there's a very bad joke with a Chinese agent character who keeps some, you know, throttling people, Burt Kwok style, saying, what did he just say? It's, it's an incredibly bad dated comedy, I must admit. Do you think it would have been any worse if Michael Winner had basically done a homage or tribute to the UK game show Bullseye? I'd certainly watch a film in which Michael Caine played Jim Bowen in Bullseye. <laughs> Out the black, in the red, nothing in this guy for two to bed. You can't paint a bit of bully. Maybe, maybe Roger Moore could have been Tony Green. And Bully's special prize. Well, I, I mean, listening to your reviews, <laughs> Nick saying, if you have to watch this, I think that, uh, that tells you everything. <laughs> Uh, but I did see in the credits, uh, was Jim Bowen actually in the film? I think he's right at the bottom of the credits, as himself. I didn't spot him in it, if he is, I must admit. I, there are a lot of cameos in it. As I say, Patsy Kensit randomly turns up at one point, and John Cleese at the end in just the laziest bit of John Cleese you've ever seen, even next to those cameo videos. This is particularly lazy from John Cleese. Although I think Bullseye the Game Show was still quite popular at this point in time in the UK, so it's not beyond the realms of possibility that Jim Bowen was, uh, was tempted to appear. Maybe he appears on a TV halfway through, you never know. It was in his contract. If it's called Bullseye, he has to be in it. Yeah, the, there's basically no reason why this film should be called Bullseye. There's kind of a darts motif going on, but it's very much of a stretch. And you also don't want to think about why Roger Moore always wants to play doppelgangers. Like he was probably nudging the Bond producers at one point. So how about I play the villain as well? And they're like, no, Roger. Keep that to the non-Bond films. Phil, maybe that's the reason for all the aliases. You never know. Maybe that is, yeah, maybe that's another theory we've stumbled across. Maybe just Roger Moore just appears in all the Bond films as a, a secret villain we just haven't noticed. Well, I was going to say, John, what was it, Sir John Bavistock. That does sound like a, a view to a kill alias, doesn't it? So that nicely segues to our next segment. It's Phil with his crazy Bond theories. They haven't been too crazy recently, but hopefully this week's offering will turn up the dial to 11, a Max Zorin 11, perhaps. What are, you, what are you pitching to us this week, Phil? So this week it's called Jane Bond 007, and it's the age-old question, will we ever see a female actor play D James Bond, either in the films or on, uh, you know, on radio or on TV? 
Now, on paper, you'd have to say no. I mean, particularly if you ask most fans, they'd probably say that, you know, they were not against it, but they would, they'd find it perhaps difficult to adjust to the idea of having a female actor as Bond, particularly because of the fact that Ian Fleming wrote the character as a male and of course, when Cubby Broccoli took over the rights to produce the films, he obviously wanted to keep as much of the original content as he could. So there was never really any sense in the kind of the early 60s that, you know, it would ever be anything other than a man would play Bond. But the thing is, I think that, you know, kind of attitudes are changing significantly. You know, we've already talked in this episode about things that weren't really, also that aren't acceptable now that were kind of acceptable in the 70s and, and you know, things that have, have changed, you know, how audiences have, have, have adapted. And we have had in the past, there have been suggestions of actors like Gillian Anderson perhaps being considered for the role. And there have been rumours that Lashana Lynch may actually take over the Bond role. But it's it seems to me that it, it would make sense for us to have a female Bond, particularly because of the fact that Bond himself has often been supported by lead female characters. You know, you, you consider Anya Massiver in Spy Who Loved Me. You consider characters like Mariam Darbo as Kara in The Living Daylights. You know, Wei Lin in Tomorrow Never Dies. I think that, you know, it would be a brave step, but I think it would be quite a good step for them to actually consider, maybe in the longer term future, actually considering a lead woman as Bond in the future, because it would give them perhaps a, a vehicle to get into a more wider audience. And actually the appeal could then grow even further for new audience as well. Obviously, it is a controversial topic. You've gone very political with these theories of, of, uh, of late, Phil. We had, is James Bond ever going to be gay or bisexual last week? Is he ever going to be a woman we've got this week? Have you, have you had to take a course at work or something and it's just on your mind? I've got visions of Roger Moore in Octopussy just where he's got the digital camera and, oh, sorry, the digital watch and it's just uh, zooming in on the breasts in, in Q's lair. And I think, I think Bond would have been sent on a course for that one. No, no, I haven't been sent on a uh, an educational course or anything. No, I just, I just figured it was a very good question to ask. The Bond franchise has always been really good at reinventing itself and always been really good at knowing what audiences are interested in. So whether it's the case that we will ever see a female actor is, it's tricky. But you know, it's you'd hope that one day we will see that. Yeah, I was just checking you weren't in trouble with HR or anything. Um, you mentioned their audience demand for it. Do you think there's an audience demand for James Bond or do you feel like a minority of sort of cultural critics are calling upon it and using it as a stick for a wider issue of there is a sort of monopoly of white male heroes in action cinema? And I would therefore posit is not the solution then to actually create more original heroes in film franchises who are themselves women rather than just lazily recasting existing heroes to suit politically correct, you know, convention, I guess. True, and there probably isn't a demand from audience at the moment. Obviously, you know, again, a lot of Bond fans would probably be quite critical if they if they cast a woman as Bond at this point in time. But, you know, again, looking further into the future, there's nothing to say that, you know, in 10 or 20 years' time that we couldn't see a female Bond actor, or sorry, a female actor play Bond. Yeah, I mean, we, we touched on this on the Dutch Bond fan interview in this episode, and I think I, I probably align myself more with uh, with his opinion. I'm more of a traditionalist. I think I agree with Adam as well, saying that uh, the solution is to create the more female characters rather than changing the existing male character into female. I think what we've learned from other like Star Wars and Doctor Who is just it can be done and it can be done well. It's just the pressure on us is so extreme so basically a bond film that would you know would sell it to the internet which gets angry about a lot of these things 
would have to be at least as good as Casino Royale, which we know be very difficult. But I think if you had a Casino Royale level bond with a kind of Charlize Theron type actor playing bond, I think it could definitely work and it, it could even spread the fan base. Good afternoon. I'm looking for Bond, James Bond. You just found her. A woman. So we move on now to our next segment, uh, which is my segment of Delve Deeply. So this week, we're going to delve into the United Kingdom uh, home country for most of our hosting team today and for Bond himself. Naturally, lots of locations to choose from. If you'd like someone else to do the hard work and choose for you, there is a specific James Bond England tour offered by BritMovieTours.com, not a sponsor, uh, who will provide a driver and a guide starting from a location of your choice at uh, 8.30 a.m lasting the whole day 10 hours they'll take you to 10 different bond locations with meals included although quite pricey at 670 pounds for two people but if you're on slightly a more modest budget uh, you could take a look at the uh, the different locations yourself we've mentioned many times in the podcast the stoke park country club in buckinghamshire that one played host to goldfinger and also the interior of that uh, the hotel that we see is also used for the hotel scene with Dr. Kaufman in Tomorrow Never Dies. Talking of Tomorrow Never Dies, probably the least glamorous place that you can visit in terms of a Bond location is the Brent Cross Shopping Centre. If you go to the car park, level four of the car park specifically, that one doubled as the Atlantic Hotel, the tremendous chase scene that we get ending with the, uh, the Avis car window. And you can also, I mean, pretty much the whole of London we could include inside this list. I don't have time in my five-minute segment, uh, but all of the usual tourist sites have been seen in several of the Bond films. Probably the uh, the MI6 building in Vauxhall and the old war office building in Whitehall might be the most interesting. Also, the, the College of Arms that we get in On Her Majesty's. I'd also like to mention uh, Elvedon Hall as well. That one is the Bladen safe house in The Living Daylights, where Necros makes a mockery of uh, MI6 security protocol. And also, if you'd like to uh, relive Die Another Day, which I'm sure nobody does, you might want to go to the Eden Project in Cornwall. Of course, when we see Jinx abseiling her way down into Gustav Graves' Ice Palace, that one was filmed at the Eden Project. And uh, a place that uh, probably holds a little bit more affection in our memories is the the beautiful Scottish Highlands. You can take a trip down the A82 near Glencoe, which provided those stunning views where uh, Emma and Bond just randomly got out of their car and had that uh, that personal conversation looking at across the way. And uh, while you're there, you might also want to visit the Aileen Donan Castle, which is the MI6 headquarters in The World Is Not Enough when the, uh, the London headquarters are blown up. Obviously, lots of uh, different locations in the United Kingdom to visit. Of course, you could visit Pinewood Studios is probably the one that features the most in the James Bond film so uh, you might want to have a tour of that location and I can't finish the segment without mentioning our favourite as well the Neem Valley Railway where you can hop off at Peterborough Station and take a look at some of the shooting locations for Octopussy and Goldeneye. Did they ever did they ever get back to us the Neem Valley Railway about recording a special episode there where we just talk about the Neem Valley Railway scenes? They haven't yet. I, I still think they should. I think it's a missed opportunity for, for us and for the Neen Valley Railway for us to, to you know maybe record on, on one of the trains. We should have had Jim Dowdor join us for the uh, for the scenes. He could have talked us through what was uh, going through his mind when he was on top of the trains, maybe. Oh, you were going to say Jim Bowen then. Jim Bowen just joins us on a train of a Neen Valley Railway. 
For some reason, I nearly said Jim Broadbent. I was like, he's definitely not been in a Bond film. This is becoming a Michael Winner movie now. Calm down, dear. And next up, we have the Kill Branch segment. It's over to Phil. What questions did we have this week, Phil? Yes, that's very much, Martin. So to kick us off, um, we had Keith Richardson on Twitter um, wanted to know, of all the kind of actors that have played James Bond, which one do we think has had the best kind of post-Bond career? Is this even a question? I mean, the answer is so obviously Sean Connery, but it's unreal. Having just watched Bullseye, I can safely say it's not Roger Moore. <laughs> oh, that cameo in Spice World, the movie, though. I mean, Brosnan's not done a huge... Brosnan's done OK. I mean, you know, Mamma Mia 1 and 2. But that's pretty much it, isn't it? OK, thanks, guys. So moving on to our next question. So, Martin, you've been um, looking at the Delve Deeply section for season two. You've looked at a lot of the kind of glamorous filming locations from the Bond franchise. The day that we can actually go outside again and, you know, actually visit places. What's the first place on your list that you're really looking forward to actually go and see from the Bond films? I've never been to Egypt, so I would like to recreate the, the Sandor moment on top of that museum, if you guys are up for it. We did all say we'd do that. Yeah, that'd be good. Um, we were going to go to New York, me and my fiance, just when everything locked down. So that's still kind of our number one place. So I guess um, everywhere in, in Harlem where Roger Moore just sort of infiltrates Mr. Big's operation would be our um, uh, spot of choice. Yeah, for me, it's, it's going to probably have to be Italy. It's kind of one of those places I've never been to, but just to be able to see Venice and, and you know, some of the great locations, you know, Lake Garda and all those lovely locations that they filmed in for so many films, I think that's that's going to be right up there as well. Now, on Twitter, we've also had a great competition that was running throughout March set by Mike Royal, and he was asking us a series of different James Bond questions, one of which that came up was, if you could actually set a James Bond film or novel in a different era, so, you know, a different decade, which one would you pick and why? Now, just to give you an idea of what I came up with, I actually thought if you set Moonraker in the future, so maybe in 100 years' time, that might actually make it a little bit better because obviously the space setting would perhaps work a little bit better. But I don't know, do you guys think you can really reset an existing Bond film in another era? I think, like, you only live twice in the middle of World War II would be chaos, but it would be good fun. It would kind of up the ante compared to the Cold War setting of of the current film. I think my approach would be to take the worst films and put them in a different era. A roll of the dice, just try again. Quantum of Solace in the 60s, Diamonds Are Forever set now. Yeah, the Diamonds Are Forever now with the kind of Vegas that exists and the former president. It would be a more political bond that could be interesting. Maybe also um, You Only Live Twice just back in the samurai era as well. So like they are genuine ninjas who are, who are going up against each other. Okay, thanks guys. Just to finish Q Branch for this week, so at time of recording, it's the Easter long weekend, so it doesn't have to be a James Bond film, but what for you guys is your go-to film at Easter? For me, just because it's Good Friday, I'd probably watch the long Good Friday is, is my pick, I think. Oh, is that why this question's in there? I don't really I don't really have a go-to Easter film. There isn't a go-to Easter film, is there? Unless you count Ben-Hur. Like everyone else, I just watched the Indiana Jones movies. Phil doesn't. Phil doesn't watch those, sir. Sir, Phil hasn't seen those, sir. Oh, for crying out loud. It's on my to-watch list. You don't have a to-watch list, Phil. This is a made-up... Uh, what else is on there? Many, many things. Bullseye. Isn't your watch list just uh, Alison Doody's IMDb page? Obviously not. I already watched uh, Indiana Jones by now, wouldn't he? Yeah, I would have watched Taffin by now, so it's... Uh... 
Uh, he loves her early, her early funny stuff. Okay, guys, thank you for your uh, responses again this week. So that was our Q branch for our season two finale. So please do keep sending in your questions, suggestions and theories. Do get in touch with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Gmail. Thanks a lot, Phil. And that leads us to our final segment of the episode and indeed of the series. It's the quiz. No, 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 stop getting Bond wrong. Stop getting Bond wrong. So Adam has already won the Cubby Cup. We'll present him with his prize at some point. I think Phil has said he's going to, uh, I don't know whether you're fashioning your own little Cubby Cup, are you, Phil? Are you going to buy one? Uh, We'll find out with the social media posts. But it is, fittingly, it's over to Adam. He is our quiz master for this week. Uh, So this week with the quiz, I thought we'd play this a bit like Mastermind, the TV series. So I've asked each of the three of them to uh, prepare a film, a Bond film, as their specialist subject. I'm going to ask each of them three questions specifically on that film, and we'll see who can get a clean sweep or who's just chosen the wrong specialist subject entirely. So we'll we'll go through these chronologically. So we'll start with Nick, and you have selected On Her Majesty's Secret Service as your specialist Bond subject. So Nick, question number one. Ruby Bartlett, who provides Bond with his first amorous encounter at Piz Gloria, is attending the clinic to be cured of her allergy of what? I believe it's chicken. You're correct, it is chicken. Very well done. Next question. In the film, Bond pays his first and only visit to the home of Bernard Lee's M, where we learn that he's a keen hobbyist at what? Uh, Butterfly collector. Yep, lepidoptery. Very well done. And your third question... As Bond prepares to resign from MI6, he removes three items from his drawer. Honey Rider's belt and knife, Red Grant's garret watch, and which other? It's the rebreather from Thunderball. Clean sweep, that's three out of three from Nick. So the pressure is now most definitely on as we come forward to Phil, who's chosen to answer on Goldeneye. So Phil, three questions on Goldeneye. Goldeneye sees the first of two appearances by which British actor in the role of Bill Tanner? Oh, it's is it Michael Kitchener? I'll give you that. It's Michael Kitchen. Uh, but yeah, you, oh. you pretty much had that, so I'll, I'll, I'll be uh, lenient. Okay, question number two. What song is being performed by Irina when Bond pays a visit to Valentin Zukovsky? It's Stand By Your Man, isn't it? Yep, Stand By Your Man. Far too easy, that one. Your final question. What is the name of the Admiral murdered by Xenia Onotop in order for her to steal the Tiger helicopter? His first name's Chuck. I'm trying to think of his surname. Oh, crack it. I can't think of his surname. I'll just say Chuck Wilson. I'll give you half a mark for that because it is Chuck, but it's Chuck Farrell. He died with a smile on his face. So that's two and a half for you. Martin, though, we come now last to you. And you have chosen to answer on Tomorrow Never Dies. So question number one. What chess-related term is Bond's codename in the opening sequence of the film? I think he's the bishop. I'm afraid he's White Knight. We've already come last, but let's go through this. Uh, Would you have known, what is the name of the first British ship to be sunk by Elliot Carver's stealth boat? The Devonshire. That was the Devonshire. And when Paris Carver and Bond are confronted by Elliot, Paris claims her connection to Bond is that he once dated her roommate while living in which European city? I'm not sure I'd have got that. Berlin? It was Zurich. Zurich was the city. So, Martin, you scored just one point there. Phil, you had two and a half. Nick, however, does win his one and only quiz of the series with three. So it's a joint wooden spoon for Martin and Phil. What a shocker. What a series shocker of a finale. 
Okay, so that brings us to the end of this week's episode and series number two. Uh, But never fear, we'll be back for series three later in the year. But in the meantime, do catch up with all of our previous episodes if you missed them the first time around. Uh, Thanks again for joining us wherever you may be listening. I was Martin. I was Adam. I was Phil. And I was Nick. Hope you enjoyed the show. Good night. Good thing he was he was able to sort of tell, you know, the, the gap of uh, how many inches there might be between the end of Lazar's and appendage and where he's aiming to fire. That could have gone very wrong.